Matthew 5.20, Jesus is speaking, and he says these stunning words. These words would have stunned his original audience. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, the Aramaic word there is raka, it was just a, it was an insulting word. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, some of you have been here every week for this series, and you just keep coming back. And I'm so pleased because every single message in the Sermon on the Mount just gets into your gut, man. It challenges you. And tonight is perhaps... Um, one of the most challenging statements that series of statements that Jesus makes when he is bringing about this issue of anger and murder. Let me take you just through a couple of things because as we begin this message, what Jesus is doing here is he is hitting a reset for kingdom thinking. That's what he does in verse number 20. He hits a reset for kingdom thinking. Listen to just listen to these words in verse 20 again. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, and the other gospel writers use the phrase kingdom of God. They're talking about the same thing. We're talking about the dominion of God for all of eternity and the manifestation of that kingdom here on earth. Now, in Jesus' day, let me tell you what had happened. The kingdom concept was defined primarily by a group of religious leaders and Hebrew Bible scholars. They're called the Pharisees. And the scribes. The scribes would have been the most biblically astute, biblically educated uh, men of their day. And not only in the Old Testament scriptures, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, not only in that were they versed, but they were also very well versed in the rabbinic traditions, the traditions of the rabbis, the codified oral expressions that had been put into written uh, uh, format and were laid upon the people as an expectation of them. It might sound a little bit like this. If you want to be right with God and participate in his kingdom, you not only need to obey the Mosaic law, but you also need to embrace the traditions that the rabbis have passed down over the generations. And so what had happened by the time that Jesus burst on the scene was that the written word of God, the Hebrew Bible, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms, the historical books, the, the inspired revelation of God, which we would call our Old Testament, 
had been so overlaid with the traditions of the rabbis that literally the traditions of the rabbis were oftentimes more prominent in people's thinking than the actual word of God. And so what you had is you had a really big tangled up system of religion. Judaism of itself as given by God through Moses was pristine and good. It came from the heart of God. But by the time Jesus appears on the scene, the kingdom of God was primarily understood by the common people as being whatever the rabbis said, whatever the scribes said, whatever the Pharisees enforced. And so when Jesus is coming on the scene, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most spiritual people that anybody could think of. And Jesus is about to make a statement here that is going to hit reset on the understanding of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And he, he does it all throughout his ministry, but he introduces it here. He says to the crowd, and one can assume that there were scribes and Pharisees present there, he says to them, he had said earlier in verse 19, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, but I want you to know something, that the scribes and the Pharisees who are admired by all, they're applauded by all, they're, they're, they're men that intimidated by their presence and their power and their words. He says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be more holy than those guys. So let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying, those guys aren't getting in. When that statement is made, every, there would have been a gasp in the audience. Because if the scribes and the Pharisees, who were moral, they were theologically conservative, they were biblically informed, they were uber-disciplined in their expression of devotion to God, and Jesus comes in and he says, yeah, that's not good enough. And so there would have been probably a catching of one's breath if you're in the audience that day, because Jesus, the Messiah, as he's beginning his ministry in the sermon, says, if you plan on getting in, You've got to go beyond what they are displaying. Now, what's the deal here? Because immediately, we think we have to behave better. We have to be more holy in our behavior because that's what religion trains us to think in. Now, I'm not here telling you that there aren't expectations on how we live as believers, but that's not what Jesus is dealing with here. Because the rest of the passage, he doesn't deal with behavior. He deals with heart. He deals with the posture of heart. What Jesus is about to do is he's about to show them that the kingdom is more than moral behavior. Hear that today because that, that still needs to be repeated. The kingdom of God is not you do better. It's, it's not try harder. It's not clean up your act and do it by Tuesday at 4 o'clock or else. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God goes beyond the presumably righteous deeds of the religious elite, and Jesus is going to go deeper than that. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but I'm going to give you something from the very last verses that are, are given in the passage that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. By the time you get to Matthew chapter number 7, verses 28 and 29, the entire Sermon on the Mount has been preached, and, and Matthew tells us how the people responded to it. Listen to what is said here. I think it'll be up on the screen. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine, at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. 
So here's the second thing when Jesus is hitting a reset in the kingdom and their kingdom thinking. The kingdom's more than your moral behavior, but it's also more than the traditional teachings that have been passed down. The scribes and the Pharisees never had anything original. Literally, what they would do is they would constantly quote the rabbis. They're always quoting the rabbis who quoted their rabbis who quoted their rabbis. It was a generational quoting of rabbis and instituting more and more traditions. And these things were very important culturally, very important religiously, but they never had revelation. And so what Jesus is, is goes through in the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end of it, the people knew something. They said, we have never, ever, ever heard anything like that. This one is not teaching like a rabbi. This one is not teaching like a religious leader. This man speaks with the authority of heaven. And so all of a sudden, everybody there in the, in the audience, the broad audience and among his disciples, they understood that Jesus did not come to put his stamp of approval on the traditional religion of his day. And I'm just going to submit to you, he still does not put his stamp of approval on the religious institutions of the day. Here we are in the Bible Belt the most religious place or region in all of the Republic, in all of the United States of America, right here. We are in the Bible Belt. There is so much religion around here. It's, it comes at us ad nauseum. It's, it's just everywhere. It'll make you wretch when you realize that much of it, not all of it, but much of it is very similar to what was going on in the days of Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees. It's tradition it's human opinion that has wrapped itself like barnacles around the decking of the gospel. And so what, what we find here is that as they needed a reset when Jesus came, we need a reset in our day. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount never leaves us comfortable. Listen, I say this every week in this series. I don't know what I'm gonna, if I'm going to get done tonight or not, but I'm going to have fun until I, it's time to quit. The the ease of religion religion is easy religion is behavioral modification that means we figure out what don't i do and somebody besides god has to tell us because religion always has somebody between you and god a pastor a priest a religious leader a discipler and so somebody tell me what to do what do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start doing so that I can feel like I am in God's kingdom? And there are so many offers of that. Denominationally, it doesn't matter if it's Baptist, Methodist, it doesn't matter if it's Catholic or Presbyterian, Episcopalian. Listen, there's plenty of religion in non-denominational charismatic churches too. It's out there everywhere. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to listen with the ears that he wanted his original audience to listen to. He wants us to listen with kingdom ears. He's speaking in this season about our need. As Jesus came to people smothered by the religion of their day, the Holy Spirit is coming in our generation, and he's speaking to people that are smothered by the religion of our day, and he's calling us out of it. So he's going after our hearts tonight in this issue of murder slash anger. It's amazing that that's where he starts, but he goes straight to the core of our hearts, and so let's go with him. I'm just going to go through these verses, and let's see what the uh, Holy Spirit does in each of our hearts. So first of all, very simply put, the Hebrew Bible, verse 21, the Hebrew Bible addressed murder. 
This is not a non-biblical or an unbiblical topic. We read this. Jesus begins to say, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. It's real important that we realize over the next several weeks, we're going to see this phrase, You have heard it said, but I am saying to you. Jesus is going to address what the common belief is of the day, the interpretation through the scribes and the Pharisees of the law. He's saying, you've heard it said a long time. Generationally, this is what you've heard, but I am saying to you. He's literally elevating what he is saying over the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not nullifying the law. He said back in verse number 19, I didn't come to abolish the law. What he's doing is he's coming after the normal, accepted understanding of the people of his day. And so here's what he's going to talk to in these next, these upcoming messages. Tonight it's anger. He's going to talk to us about anger. He's going to talk to us. We did this one a couple of weeks ago on the issue of lust and immorality. Um, He's going to talk to us about divorce. We need to hear what the heart of God is. The church needs a fresh baptism of understanding of how do we handle the issue of divorce because it is massive in our culture. And I've seen churches completely ignore what Jesus says about it. I've seen other churches bring down the hammer on people that are divorced as if it's the unpardonable sin. So we're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks, but he's also going to talk about keeping our word, taking oaths, the issue of revenge and loving your enemies. So what he's doing is saying, I know what the traditional teaching of the day is, but I want you to hear me. So Jesus is going to speak with authority straight into our lives. And so he gives us these ancient examples. I mean, he says, you've heard that it was said uh, to those of old. Let's just stop there for a second. Jesus is saying to a large audience, hey, all of you guys know what the traditional teaching is, and it's going to be about murder. That's what he's going to talk about. So they would have been very familiar with the the teachings of the Hebrew Bible. They would have known the stories. There was a great uh, passing down of truth from mouth to mouth in that day. Obviously, long before the printing press was involved, very few people owned copies of the scriptures. They were very expensive, very hard to get, and probably 99% of the people never had access to God's word, the Hebrew Bible. And so Jesus, his audience would have known these stories because they would have been told to them by parents and other teachers. And everybody knew, nobody was going to debate, that it was a sin to commit murder. Anybody want to debate that tonight? It's a sin to commit murder. That kind of activity, that kind of deed is foreign to the heart of the Father. Uh, They would have thought about this. Think about this with me. The very first recorded sin of, of a human against a human was the sin of murder. It was Cain killing. The very first family practiced um, uh, murder, brother against brother. You get a little bit further in the book of Genesis, you've got Joseph's brothers that were going to kill him. We're just buying time trying to figure out how do we kill our little brother because they were jealous of his dreams and jealous of the visions God had given him. And so they were going to kill him, but they saw a moment to make a few dollars. And instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. But murder was there. It just didn't have an occasion to take place. You get into the days of the judges where the Bible says everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's the most violent book in the Bible. 
people, I, I like to tell young people this, and I know the Bible's boring, uh, but I say unto you, read the book of Judges, come back to me and tell me if you think the Bible is boring. That thing would be rated NC-17 if it was a movie put out there. It's not boring at all. It's intense. Tons and tons of violence that happened. So murders happening everybody, the, everywhere. The history of the kings, most of the kings of Israel met their demise through being assassinated or murdered. You get to King Saul. King Saul, the, the last chapters of his life was all about, he was consumed with murdering David. And by the way, when David comes into power and commits a sin with Bathsheba, what did he do to her husband? So everybody in Jesus' audience would nod their heads and say, murder is a violation of the sixth commandment. It is unholy. It is sinful. So that wasn't a big deal. You don't get a, like a gold medal for saying amen to that. That's a, a no-brainer. So God's expectation is, is, was, and is you can't murder people. Um, he, he actually even says that there is a kind of a judicial punishment for murder. Um, whoever murders, Jesus says, will be liable to the judgment. So Jesus is speaking to this issue. He's saying that murder is such a grievous sin that the ramifications, the consequences of it, may be that the person who is the murderer actually loses their own life. Let me, let me just give you a couple of things here because while we're talking about this, no need to make it ir irrelevant. This, this is a, a, a matter of debate among believers. The Bible never forbids all killing. You need to hear me on this. The Bible forbids murder. That is an unjust taking of a human life by another human. But you're going to be, perhaps some of you, surprised to find out that God has never been and has not changed, is still not opposed to capital punishment. You say, Jeff, how can you say that? Because it was his idea. It was the idea of God. Let me give you a verse, Genesis 9, 6. This is from the Lord. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now watch that. God says, the reason why I hate murder is because I'm the author of all life. When I ordain a life and bring it into the world, that life is an expression of my image. And when somebody takes that life, they violate me. And so what does God do? God does not say, I'm going to kill them. Look what God says. God says, by man shall that blood be shed. In other words, God actually institutes civil government to take the life of those who are murderers. You say, uh, Jeff, I need to protest here. You're going Old Testament on us. We are under grace. We are Christians. I'm glad you protested because I'm going to shot block it right here from Romans chapter 13, verses 3 through 4. New Testament, Apostle Paul. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, pause with me. 
To bear the sword was a euphemism for an executioner's sword. Capital punishment by the Roman government is what Paul is referring to in that day. He says, the one who bears the sword is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, why am I going to this extreme? One very practical reason, because it's a debated issue, and among Christians, not just in the public forum, but among Christians, that we assume all capital punishment is inconsistent with Christian faith. It's not. Here's where the rub is. The rub is not everybody in the room, including yours truly, has a whole lot of confidence in the justice of our governmental systems. And we all know stories about people that were condemned and tried and convicted and released 20 years later after some DNA tests proved that they were not the person. And some of those people are on death row. Having said all of that, I will just stick to the biblical principle that teaches us this. God is not opposed to all killing. He is opposed to murder. There are just wars in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, just wars fought by Israel where God ordained death to those that would be the spiritual and physical uh, cultural enemies of Israel. Now, the reason why I'm saying all of that is because there's, Christians get debated a lot because they think, non-believers think that God's talking out of both sides of his mouth, thou shalt not kill, and then you read the history of Israel and you've got a lot of killing going on. We're talking about murder. Murder occurs when rage, anger gives way to an act. It is not about justice. We don't have the legal right to execute justice on those that, uh, that offend us or hurt us. However, we are given the ability to defend. So we can defend ourselves and if necessary, unto the death. That is not murder. That is defense. And so... I just want to clear the air on that. What we're talking about is the taking of a life for unholy, selfish purposes. And the Bible is very clear on that, that that's murder, that breaks the sixth commandment. And in Jesus's day, everybody gave themselves a free pass because all of the scribes, all of the Pharisees, everybody in the audience can say, yeah, I'm free and clear on that thing. I've never killed anybody. And Jesus says, not so fast because I'm going to say something to you. And this is where everybody in this room tonight gets the opportunity to confess something you never thought that you would ever have to confess. What am I talking about? You ready for it? You're a murderer at heart. God bless you. We're done tonight. We'll see you later. Say, so Jeff, I feel very judged. Well, listen, stick with me and let's just see if, if, if the shoe fits. Because Jesus in verse 22 reveals the spirit of murder. First of all, there's this issue of like smoldering anger in the heart. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, now just pause there, I'm going to give the rest of the verse in a second. I, I don't think there's anybody that's committed physical murder in the room tonight, and if you have, uh, my hope and sincere hope is that You've brought that sin before the Lord Jesus and that you're cleansed and that you're walking in full forgiveness and that whatever needed to happen legally has run its course and now that you're, you're free in Jesus and hopefully living a life of freedom. Chances are we don't have a murderer in the house tonight, but I'd venture to say that every single one of us uh, have felt the impulse in our heart at one point in our life. 
So Jesus, what is he doing here? He's addressing people who have present anger in their hearts residing there towards another. Murder is the fruit. Anger is the root. And what Jesus is doing here, remember what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going past the traditional legalistic teaching of, hey, modify your behavior, don't kill your neighbor, and you're free and clear. And Jesus says, oh, just hold on a second. I'm going to tell you something about your heart. And he is, he's moving deeper into this audience. So what does the rest of the verse say? Well, you know what it says. Um, he says, who, who, he, goes, he goes a little further. Same verse. Whoever's angry in his heart, and that anger of the heart manifests through anger in the mouth. Whoever insults his brother. Whoever says, you fool. Now, if you have a, a King James Bible, New King James, maybe even NASB, they give you that word raka. And it was an Aramaic term that really is not easily defined. So most of the older translations, they just kind of transliterate it. They just bring it in. The word is raka. And it, it, it typically is understood to mean you empty-headed idiot. You, 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 you blockhead. You numbskull. You nitwit. Those kind of things. We don't say those words anymore, but I can't use the words we do say or that the culture says in here. But whoever insults his brother and whoever says, you fool, you fool. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I know your hands haven't shed blood, but your heart has. Your heart has come up against a person made in the image of God and presumptuously and proudly, your angry heart that disdained them, that dismissed them, that despised them, that angry heart didn't produce murderous hands, but it produced words that were meant to slay. And he actually goes so deep that he's like, I see the smile on your face. I see your hands have no blood, but I also see your heart, and I hear what comes out of your mouth. I, I actually got convicted over this. Um, I, I, I do my best never to insult anybody. Um, but God, just so you know, I don't ever stand up here holier than thou. There's a specific show that Amy and I will watch after church on Sunday night. I go home, I'm borderline in a vegetative state. I'm so just like, and there's this show, I'm not going to give the name of it because I don't want you to watch it and say, yeah, that, oh, now I see what he was saying. But I don't know why everybody on the show is horribly unattractive. And listen, I know what I look like. I get it, man. I am not Brad Pitt, Brad anything. I, I, I get that. But I just, I, I, I look at it, I'm like, how can they all look like that? And so, and I, I, it's a joke in my house. And, you know, we're just kidding around. I would never say that to hurt them or anything. They're on TV. I'm in my bed. And so, and God brought that to mind today. And let me tell you what the Holy Spirit said to me. Holy Spirit said, they are wonderfully created. That literally my heart where it wasn't anger, but it certainly wasn't love, produced words that betrayed something within me that I could, I wasn't saying raka, I wasn't saying you fool, I wasn't insulting them that way, but I was saying stuff 
that literally insults the one who made them that way. So I repented in my office today. Just want to let you know. There's some time of, God, forgive me. God, I'm sorry. And I literally prayed, Lord, don't let me off the hook with that ever again until that tendency in me is completely gone from my life. Why? Because Jesus tells us in Luke 6, 45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever's coming out of my mouth comes from the factory of what's going on in my heart. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, your hands are clean, but your mouth is evidence that something going, do you see what he's doing? He's moving from hands to mouth, and then he's getting inside of us. And he's finally going to get to our hearts on this issue. Um, I, I will say this, and this is just a word of, an, of uh, exhortation probably. I don't think it's realistic. Everybody messes up. Listen, there's not a one in here that walks 100% of the time in absolute uh, perfected, perfected holiness. We are being sanctified. We are in process. But I would give this word of caution. If there is constant anger, unwillingness to forgive, and hatred coming out of your mouth regularly and consistently, I would say consider your salvation. I would say that that's not good fruit. I'm not saying occasionally, but I'm saying if with ease in the absence of conviction that your heart can produce stuff that comes out of your mouth and you, you feel nothing about it, I would say, I'm not asking you to question your salvation, I'm asking you to consider it. Just consider it. And so he goes on a little bit further. He says, when this stuff happens, when you're saying, thou fool, raka, and insulting, and you have anger in your heart towards somebody, he says, listen to what he says. This is not Jeff. He's like, yeah, it's not just the murderer who's, who's standing with God is in jeopardy. It's the heart murderer. It's the person who lives in a constant state of anger and heart murder. That person is liable to the judgment. Liable to the council, that's a reference to the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ordained governing religious group, the leaders. And then he just kind of removes all that. He says, we'll be liable to the hell of fire. Um, he's talking about uh, Gehenna. Um, it's a reference that Jesus uses to the southwest of the city of Jerusalem. There was a, what was formerly a, a, a site of child sacrifice um, in Israel's days of apostasy. By the time Jesus came, that, that area had been turned into the, the garbage heap outside of the city, and there was constant refuse and waste, and they would burn it. And so it, there was constant flame that never went out, and it became the metaphor, the descriptive metaphor of the reality of eternal judgment in the lake of fire. It, we would use the word hell. And so what Jesus is referring to there was the common understanding that if there is this unrepentant um, state of anger and hatred towards another person in somebody's heart and they're content to live with it, Jesus says that's going to manifest by what comes out of your mouth. He says, but, but you need to know you're, you're in danger of hell. It's not encouraging but it is an opportunity for all of us to examine our hearts and say, God, help me if a trace of that is in my heart. No, literally, help me 
Because what we have to do is we have to uproot it. We have to go hard. Listen, I, I, I spent a lot more time than I wanted to getting weeds out when I came back from vacation. My, they had sprouted up during all the rains. How many of you know that you can't just clip the top off of a weed? What do you have to do? You got to yank it out by the root. Even then, they still come back in my yard. But the reality is, is when this stuff roots, it starts sprouting in our hearts, you have to get to the root. Now, in, in case we wonder how seriously the Lord takes us, uh, takes this, uh, Jesus is going to show us how he prioritizes repentance from anger. Because literally, anger is heart murder. We cannot afford to say, not really, though. Jesus is saying it's heart murder. Jesus, although there's greater consequences when we commit physical murder, spiritually, as we stand before the Lord, he reads our heart as if the action had already taken place. And so he wants to deal with the core of the issue, which is not in our hands, it's in our heart. And so look at what he does. He's going to give us some, some intense instruction here that, that just reveals to us how seriously he takes this thing. Y'all still alive? Y'all with me? I know it's not fun, but it's healthy, okay? So let's do this. First, in verse 23, he's just telling us, search your heart. So he, he gives an illustration. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, let's just stop there. So he, he paints the scene of one of those believers. Let's just say it's, the, uh, it's a time of offering a sacrifice for sin. And so he, he, he's painting the picture of them coming through the succession of courts to bring their sacrifice to the priest so the priest can slay the animal for the sin. And as they're waiting in line, they realize, oh no, I have a grievance with so-and-so. And in this illustration, the person with the sacrifice is the one who's done the wrong. And I'm about to worship God when I know that my heart's not right and I'm out of fellowship, I'm out of relationship, I've got this fractured fellowship with somebody in my family or somebody in my, my community and, and, and there they are about to worship God outwardly but inwardly their heart's not right. So practically, in a, the pragmatist would say this, okay, well, I'm already here. I've got this animal. I've been waiting in line. The priest is right there. He's already seen me. I, I just need to get, this is our duty. This is the only day I can get up here to the temple to offer this. I need to do this. Let me, let me just go through with it because that's the pragmatist in us. You say, well, Jeff, what does that have to do with us? It happens every Sunday. It's the person who's at war with their spouse but wants to come in and lift his or her hands to Jesus and sing. It's, it, it's the preacher who's at odds with the person sitting in on the third row, no offense then I don't have anybody in mind, sitting on the third row and he or she just plans on getting up there and delivering that sermon as if there's not an issue and they're going to leave after the sermon as if there's not an issue. It just happens all the time. And in this illustration, Jesus is just putting it in the worship context of his day. So what does he do? He says, search your heart. If you've got something that's broken, and wrong, unresolved anger, bitterness, whatever it is, it's not, it's, not, it's not like mysterious. The Lord, the Holy Spirit will show you what it is. 
You may not know what to do practically, but he'll show you who it is and what it is. And he doesn't do that for informational purposes. He does it for transformational purposes because he's actually going to help you. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't just search your heart, submit your heart. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. This has always blown my mind because this is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, hey, I love you. You're mine. We, I belong to you. You belong to me. We're together for eternity. I love you. But you know that you and so-and-so are, are fractured. Y'all are broken. Y'all are out of fellowship. There's bitterness. There's anger. It's unresolved. And you know you haven't done what you can do to offer steps towards reconciliation. And you're standing there with your gift, your heart, your sacrifice, your offering, your ministry. You're standing there before me, ready to release it to me in my name as an act of worship. And this is what Jesus says. He says, hey, don't do that. Matter of fact, just leave that thing for later. Will you go? No, it's not actually a question. It's a command. Go. This is what he says. Don't worship me right now. Don't sing. Don't pray. Don't serve. Let's don't do vertical right now. Go and make it right. And then, he does say this, then, First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come on back. Just come on back. Then come, and let's go, let's go vertical. But right now, child, um, you're vertical. Um, I can't receive that. That's hard. That is so hard. Don Friend and I have been doing... Uh, community church together for how many years like two yeah 2000 and something a long time and Don was with me and there may be some others in the room in some of the worst days in our back back in the meadow days we used to be meadow baptist and we've merged twice since then but um there was a season where every single time I stepped up here every single time for six years I could have named four to eight people that hated my guts. And it was the hardest season, the longest season. And let me tell you, because I'm like you. Well, actually, I won't put that on you. You might be like me in this. Um, I was convinced they were wrong. And even if I was a little wrong, they were a lot wrong. So, bless God, they better come and make that right with me. That's the way I felt on some of those occasions, and God never let me get away with it. And I constantly had to go to people, anything I could think of to repent, anything I could think of to open dialogue, anything I could think of to restore brotherhood and fellowship, I would do, I just, I was like, God, how much lower do I have to go on this thing? And he never let me off the hook. There was never a time where he said, yeah, you don't have to do that anymore. Every time I was convicted, I would have to circle back. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I'd say less than 10% of those relationships got healed. 
So I had learned by the second year, this doesn't work, Jesus. I, if I go to them, I know what they're going to do. They're going to do the same thing the last guy did. And the last guy. And so the pragmatist in me want to say, yeah, that doesn't really work. Here, let me lay my gift before the altar today. And he just said, no, I want you to go and humble yourself. And I want you to offer them, Jeff, what I constantly offer you when you do me wrong. You see, that's what it's all about. We, we give to others the grace that we crave for our own soul. And so the Lord took me through a long season. Now, I'm happy to tell you, um, I don't know of a single person in this community that hates me. And if you do, keep it to yourself, amen. I, I'm just, let me live in ignorance. But, but I'm telling you, there were years, I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And the Lord wanted to test me on this thing, and he's going to do that with some of you. That's the only reason I shared those stories. I don't like sensationalizing you know, trouble in the body of Christ, but I'm telling you, he's going to do that with some of you because your breakthrough is on the other side of you humbling yourself and going to your brother even if, or your sister, even if they were the one that initiated the problem in the first place. The Lord just says, I want you to own any part of it that you legitimately own, and I want you to humble yourself and put yourself out there. We're not talking about you putting yourself in a dangerous situation where physical harm or anything like that can happen to you. We're talking about relationally. Sometimes all you can do is write a letter. But if you can write a letter, write a letter. You send an email. You make a phone call. If you can get face-to-face, -face, you do it. And I'm not going to tell you, and Jesus doesn't either, that the person's going to say, oh, I've been waiting for this, hallelujah, and you know, give you a big old happy hug. doesn't always work out that way. But I'm going to tell you, every time I did it, I was both dying on the inside because he was pulverizing my own sinful heart, my own selfishness, my own self-justification, my own need to be right, my own name to be vindicated. I, I, wanted, I wanted that justice to happen, but I wanted the justice to fall on them and not on me. And so every time I did that, it was just God crushing the nasty parts of Jeff out of me. And on the back end of it, I always left with a sense of well done, thou good and faithful servant. I knew I did what was right, and sometimes, friends, that's all we can know. I feel almost like a little prophetic edge on that for some of you, that y'all need to address those roots in your heart that are in some toxic soil, and you need to pull it up, and sometimes that involves dislodging and uprooting the anger that, that has taken root through negligence and through you just learning to live with it. That's the worst thing about undealt with anger. We just learn how to live with it. And as you learn how to live with it, you carry it with you everywhere you go. And, and the, the awareness has to be, it's like, where does that anger live? Well, it lives in, in our heart. That's the way we would say it. It lives in our heart. Well, who owns your heart? I mean, I'm going to tell you, I love you, but you, you walk into my house with a, um, let me be delicate here, uh, with whatever your dog left on my front lawn and you throw it on my kitchen table, I'm going to let you know real quick, hey, that actually doesn't belong in here. And I'm going to get that junk out of there. How much more so do we think when we allow that kind of pollution in our hearts that the Lord's okay with that? That was a terrible illustration, but you know, where, <laughs> you know what I meant with that. He says, leave your gift at the altar, go, be reconciled with them, and then come back and offer your gift. And so I've got nine minutes. I'm going to go through this. Um, Jesus immediately begins to shift in the illustration. He goes from the illustration of somebody coming to worship 
whose heart's not right. He moves from a religious context in the worshiping at the temple to a legal context with a courtroom. And he, he, he says, you need to come to terms quickly with your accuser uh, while you are going with him to court. So he's changed scenes completely. Now he gives the illustration of two people that have a lawsuit. And he's saying, apparently the ones he's talking to, he's saying, you're the one who's getting sued. You did the wrong. And what you need to do is humble yourself and get with the person that's suing you. That's the context here. It's an illustration. And he's saying, you need to get things right before you get to the courtroom. Now, why is he going to say that? Well, it's, it's this last point. He's going to sober us about the fallout from anger. This is how serious the Lord takes this. So he's got this context. So you're going to court, and he's saying, get with the person that you're at odds with before you get before the judge. Don't go in with that thing before the judge. He says, lest your accuser, accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, the bailiff, and the bailiff takes you to prison. So the illustration is this. Jesus is saying, when you know you're at odds with somebody, and in this context, especially if you have done the wrong yourself, humble yourself, go to the person, make it right before the judge has to weigh in on the situation. See, in the illustration, God is the judge. That's what Jesus is saying here. God is the judge. We've got two people that are warring with each other. And th the beauty of it is this. God, the holy creator, almighty God, says, I'd prefer you two to work out this situation, and I won't have to. And listen, we want to take him up on that offer. Not because he's mean and scary, he's going to fly off the handle, but he is holy, and he is just, and he cannot endorse our hypocrisy. And so what he's saying is, y'all work it out. Sometimes you're not the one that did wrong, sometimes you're the one who's been done wrong, and the person that did the wrong is carrying on happily with their life. They're not thinking about it. They're doing their own thing. And meanwhile, you're in turmoil because this relationship's all jacked up, and they don't seem to care at all, and you don't feel like you should have to go to them. And so you're getting all knotted up and tangled and bitter and stewing in lemon juice, and you're just unhappy, and, you know, they're, they're kicking on with life. And, and what's happening is your heart's getting defiled because of something that happened to you. And that makes it even worse. Like, I didn't ask for this. Why are you putting the responsibility on me, Lord, to clean this up? I didn't make this mess. But when the Lord is talking to you about it, chances are, if he's not talking to the other person too, chances are, if he's talking to you about it, it means he trusts you with initiating the process that needs to come to pass. So when I hear him, I've learned, I've learned on this. When I'm at odds with somebody, you're going to get tested in this in your marriage. You're going to get tested in this with your kids or your parents. You're going to get tested with this at work. You're going to get tested with it at the church. As soon as you know you're at odds with somebody and the Lord just gently whispers, he's like, hey, child, hey, I love you. You're awesome. You're my favorite. You're so beautiful. I'm glad you're mine. But we both know that something's messed up in your heart towards this person right now. I want you to go to her. I want you to go to him. And I'm going to go with you, but I want you to start walking and let's bring resolution to this thing. And what I've learned to do is not say, well, what about her? Why don't you get her to come to me? 
Why don't you get him to come to me? As soon as I hear him talking to me about it, I go. That's, we're not to worry about the other person. We're not to wait on God to make them do what he's telling us to do. So we step out in faith and obedience and the blessing falls upon us. We become the people of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus goes on, and I'm, I really am, I'm just about done. He, he, he tells us this unresolved anger can imprison us. And in doing so, it, unresolved anger isolates you. He says, truly, I say to you, you'll never get out. Good night, can this get any more bleak? But that's how serious he takes this thing. The illustration is this. When we live with unresolved anger and bitterness in our hearts, we are in a self-imprisonment, and we're never really free. I mean, you can go to work, you can enjoy a ball game, you can have moments, but there are, there are times where you actually have to stay occupied to avoid the voice of conviction from the Holy Spirit. So you're never really free. And he says, yeah, you're actually not going to get out of that unless... And that's the end of the, the message. Unless and until you've paid the last penny. Now that is ominous. Jesus says, you're going to get, you're going to stand before the judge. The judge is going to turn you over to some power, the, the bailiff, the, the guard. That guard's going to put you in a prison. And you're going to stay there until the debt's paid. That is not happy, but it's true. Listen, in lots of years of ministry, I am no longer ever surprised when I find somebody that is battling massively, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, anything from rage to bleak, bleak depression. So often, I don't know the percentage, so often in dialogue, we will be able to trace it back to bitterness, unforgiveness, and anger. Not every time, but a lot of the time. And so we have to go there because until they deal with that, the prison goes with them wherever they go. And so when we can deal with that, and by the way, that's what Jesus is saying. He says, until the last penny is paid, what is he saying? Until you don't owe the debt anymore. Well, how do you get out of the debt? Well, let me just give you this and we're done. It's extremely helpful to remember that we can exit this inner prison cell if we'll simply settle the debt that we owe. What do we owe? We owe one another forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, as Christ has forgiven you, forgive others. Literally, that's a non-negotiable. Jesus literally commands me, Jeff, you forgive everybody for everything. You do it in real time. You do it when I convict you. You do it because you are forgiven. And the forgiveness I've given you comes with the power to forgive everybody else. And so that's part of getting free from that debt. We also owe each other a debt of love as those that are loved by God. Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything, owe nobody anything except to love one another. So whoever you are in this room, whoever's going to listen to it later or watch it on our, our streams, I'm just telling you, I don't know your name, I don't know your story, but I do know one thing. I owe you a debt of love that I'm literally, as a child of God, I am indebted to love you. And so part of loving is setting the offended uh, the offender free 
that we literally let them go. You say, well, Jeff, what if they never repented? What if they never acknowledged how they hurt me? What if they never made it right? Friends, you are absolutely not in control of that. You are in full control of releasing them so you can be released. To get out of the prison cell, we have to free the one that we are imprisoning with our unforgiveness and our anger. And the beauty of it is this. When you do, when you make that decision, where you commit to that course of action, you are immediately released. And what happens in short time usually, you start feeling released. I've seen clinical depression broken off of people when we, we go to that soul tie and we break it off of them in the name of Jesus. I've seen them absolutely released. I've seen their countenance change in a meeting. Like they came in with darkness and bondage on their countenance and they leave radiant. What has happened? This is not just an illustration. It's an illustration of a spiritual reality. And so for all of us, and I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet because that will force me to be quiet. I promise you I could go 30 more minutes, but I'm not going to. Everybody in the room, I'm not asking you to make an impulsive, emotional decision. I'm asking you to weigh what Jesus says because the world says, you don't have to do that. Jesus says, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, anger is heart murder. We don't only siphon off life from the one we're angry with. We kill our own ability to live in the fullness of what God has for us. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to bless us with this. Would you just bow your head? This is so hard to do. So I'm going to pray. Father, give faith in this room right now. Faith towards you. Trust of you. Holy Spirit, shepherd into a full release of those who've done us wrong. And Lord, where there is struggle, just stay there with them, assuring, leading, and show them the backside of their releasing of the one that's wronged them. Show them the end result, the other side of it. Show them the freedom, the return of joy, and the reinstitution of peace in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I know that was hard, um, but listen, if, if we'll do it, I promise you, as a guy who's been there, if, if we'll do it and do it the rest of our days, there's such joy and power and freedom attached to it. God bless. We're dismissed.